Morning, everyone. Uh, so we have two readings this morning. Um, so the first reading is Isaiah chapter 6, uh, verses 1 to 8. Um, you can follow on, on the screen beside me, or it'll be in a little slip uh, that you received when you came in. So Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. The second reading is Acts chapter 28, verses 17 to 28. Three days later, he called together the Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, Although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see, see you and talk with you because it is for the hope of Israel that I am bound by this claim. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come, here, come from there have reported or said anything bad about you. We want to hear what your views are, uh, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to the people and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart had become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen." Well, good morning again, everyone. It's great to be together today for one last time as a church family, already with a number of new households having joined us in recent weeks. Welcome. 
Well, I wonder this morning as you uh, came to today how you're feeling about the world this week. Uh, Every culture, every worldview, every belief system has its understanding of why the world is the way it is, what its underlying problems are and what causes so much of our world's troubles. I'd really love to be able to, uh, you know, today sit with groups of people from, you know, right across the planet and just ask them how they're feeling about the moment, how they're seeing our world's ills and what they think some of the solutions are. Common to most, I suspect, would be a sense of weariness, a sense of sadness and concern about what kind of world our kids are going to inherit. The war in Ukraine, for example, has brought many images that we didn't expect to see in our lifetime with fears of a much wider conflict. It's also sent some shockwaves through an already fragile world economy, seeking to get back on its feet as we come out of the pandemic. And closer to home, uh, I'd been a little tuned out to news this week, been uh, a bit busy to to see much, but I was really shocked when I saw footage from uh, Lismore as but one of the places along the east coast that has seen so much destruction in the floods. And uh, yesterday, as uh, Grace brought me in a, a cup of coffee and I flicked the TV screen on, uh, I too was shocked uh, when I'd heard that Warney had died. Now, I realise uh, he's but only one death amongst thousands this week, but I suspect as we kind of process uh, all of this in the weeks ahead as we mourn a cricketing legend, I think underneath all that, the idea of having a heart attack at 52 is an unpleasant reminder of our mortality in a culture that does its best to hold back the looming shadow of death and minimise the prospect of it to reduce our trauma. I think our seven-year-old puppy captured it well when we were discussing uh, yesterday over breakfast how sad a day it would be for Warney's kids when she said, I hope you don't die, Dad. (laughs) It's into this world today that we commission a new church. Much love, prayer, money and the giving of our energy and gifts has already been given and in an ongoing and various ways each member of Trinity Church Tonsley will continue to give of themselves in the years ahead. As we do so and as we likewise labour to reform Kernelite Gardens as we start a new chapter there, what is the sustaining fuel that will keep us and keep both churches aloft? What is our understanding of our world's biggest problems and what Jesus is doing today in his church here on earth to address them? To answer those questions, we're going to turn uh, to two of the greats of the Bible, uh, two people that uh, God has done a wonderful work through, firstly the prophet Isaiah and then the apostle Paul. And on this commissioning Sunday, we're going to first travel back to the Middle East, back almost 2,800 years ago, to the commissioning of the prophet Isaiah. And it'd be great to have the Bible reading uh, just read to us by Lockie there in front of you. Where we join Isaiah in the year King Uzziah died, which is about 740 BC. And it marked an end of an era of national prosperity for the people of God. Isaiah as a king and started off pretty well, pretty capable ruler, all-round military guy. But 
Over years, his pride became his downfall. And he took the holiness of God a little casually and presumed to burn incense at the altar, something reserved just for the priests. And he was struck down with leprosy and died some 10 years later, which is the time Isaiah sees this vision of God. He says, verse 1, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, I don't know what you would consider the most awe-inspiring, take-your-breath-away thing that you've ever seen is. I was trying to think this week, and for me it was probably some of the mountains in the Swiss Alps. Uh, Grace and I, as backpackers, many years ago went up the Jungfrau Railway. We'll pop a, a picture up on screen there which in itself is quite the engineering marvel, spending most of its time as a railway inside the mountain. And eventually it pops you out at the top. You can see uh, the train coming out of the tunnel there. And it places you on uh, the sort of saddle between those two great mountains, almost about 3,500 metres up. It's noticeably harder uh, to breathe and exercise there. But when you're in the train station in the bottom in the morning as you start you're tucked quite into the valley and you just can't see or even begin to comprehend the sheer size, scale and beauty of what you're about to ascend. And with all the clouds and the tunnels and the valleys, you only really get a series of snapshots on the way up. Take your breath away snapshots to be sure, but you kind of wish you could just step back from a moment and in awe and see all of the mountain's beauty. Isaiah, in his vision, is similarly trying to grasp the majesty of the Lord God Almighty. And he's very aware that he can't get close to taking it all in. He's kind of like Grace and I at the train station at the valley at the bottom of the mountain. Isaiah is kind of so close up to the bottom of something that he just, he just can't see up. To give us a sense of scale... In his vision, he's in the temple, a pretty large and impressive building for its day. And what fills his field of vision is just the train of God's robe. It completely fills the temple. Now, this room here, I really like it. It's a large and impressive space here at Tonsley. But imagine you know, us sitting here with me being just as tall as the hemline along the edge of the robe that completely fills this space. Imagine sort of straining, looking up and trying to kind of grasp something that's so awe-inspiring that it really does take your breath away. Now that still doesn't even get close to the breadth of Isaiah's vision because as he kind of looks up, all around it are angels of fire, each one in its own right amazing and something to be marvelled at. But they're flying around calling to one another. Verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The repetition of holy, I think, intensifies what they're saying, that the Lord is utterly pure and separate from the sin and brokenness of this world. And so kind of imagine that picture here today, this whole place just being filled with the, the robe of the temple, these burning angels flying about. And the sound of this angelic chorus 
shakes the whole building. I just realised how ironic that is for those of us who felt the earthquake uh, this morning. It's always quite something to be typing. I do a Sunday morning rewrite of your sermon. I just finished a line I was quite happy with and the ground shook and the, and the roof of the RSL shook if you slept through it. Adelaide had an earthquake uh, this morning. It's very good timing for a sermon illustration. But imagine that, this, this whole picture of God's, the, just the edge of his robe filling this whole space us looking up burning angels flying around and the whole place shaking so that we can't approach this god and then smoke fills the place so we can only just see what's in front of us sight sound touch smell shaking this is a fully immersive experience of the creator god the lord that isaiah has Words, however well-crafted, do not do this experience justice. What would your reaction be to such a vision, such a huge vision of God's holiness, his majesty? It would totally blow our minds, I think, as our vision of God, however big it is, isn't this big. (laughs) Just imagine how our world would react if God showed up like this amongst the fighting in Ukraine or in Lismore as the waters recede. The sound of gunfire amidst the conflict would cease. So too would that familiar sound of shovels scraping against concrete amongst the cleanup. Our world and everyone who saw it would be truly awestruck. Here in Australia, people going about their business with their concerns, their weariness, simply do not view God this way. I've been listening to a guy called Ray Galea preach on Acts recently for my own encouragement, and I'm very much standing on his shoulders this morning as we look at these two passages. But his comment on Australian culture really grabbed me. And he'd actually kind of picked it up and worked out this turn of phrase through talking to missionary friends who had spent a long time away, Australians who had spent a long time away from our culture and were now coming back and could see it with fresh eyes. And the turn of phrase as that they came up with, with the kind of Australian cultural view of God, is that Australians are quite casually aggressive when it comes to God. Most Aussies, and all the research proves this, still believe in a God of some sort yet are very casual about wanting to not think too hard about the things of God. We'll sort it out later. If God's there, I'm sure he's on my side. Very casual. But also Australians can be quite aggressive towards God when we are confronted with the mess of our world, with that kind of wait till I meet God and give him a piece of my mind about the floods, the war, the disease, the tragedies, kind of reflex, casual aggression towards God. I think that's a great descriptor of Australian culture. Because if your picture of God is of a God who is small, weak and impotent, of course you can talk to God that way. And especially if you think he owes you something. Yet Isaiah, one of the few people confronted with a vision of God as he really is, the God whose glory fills the whole earth, his response is entirely different. Verse 5, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. For some context here, Isaiah has been called as a prophet to speak to the people of God about their sin, and he declares to them many woes. Woes against those who add house to house, accumulating wealth with no concern for the poor, the sin of greed. Woes against those who call evil good and good evil, the sin of putting ourselves in God's place through moral relativism. And that's just to name a few, but Isaiah is not a self-righteous brat. He too knows of his own sins and failures. God's prophet does not stand apart from the people, for he knows he's right in among them. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. Now, this idea of cleanliness, it wasn't the kind of hand sanitizer, neat and tidy, safe food handling type of cleanliness. It was the idea of being cleansed from our sins, of treating our loving creator God so, so badly and trashing the relationship. And to name but one of the sins that we commit against one another, our tendency to use our power and wealth to protect ourselves and those we love at the expense of the powerless, whom we never say it out loud, but we just simply deem them less deserving. Sin in both directions, vertically towards God and horizontally towards our fellow man, cannot be tolerated by a holy God. As a society, we've reduced the idea of guilt to just being an emotion that we need to let go of through loving ourselves a bit better, being kind to ourselves, forgiving ourselves. But that's not the biblical idea of guilt. God sees it as it really is an objective record of wrongdoing that needs to be dealt with as part of God's justice. Yet the solution is not for us simply to try harder or to do enough good works to outweigh uh, the bad uh, that both the atheist worldview and the world religions save Christianity teach. That simply can never work if you were to come before the holy God that Isaiah has seen, whose presence can bear no single sin. We need something far more radical. We need to be cleansed by another, our guilt removed by an external force while somehow still maintaining justice so that our world's wrongs are dealt with. Isaiah knows he is ruined if it is not the case. Woe to me, he says. Yet in verse 6, something entirely unexpected happens. One of the flaming angels of Isaiah's vision takes a coal from the altar in the temple where the sacrifices for sin are made and flies to Isaiah, verse 7. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. By God's grace, at his initiative, Isaiah is made holy and he is now fit for purpose as God's messenger. And as one who has been forgiven, he responds to God's call for someone to be sent to the nation with good news. Here I am, send me. He says with the joy of someone who has had 
the deepest experience imaginable of God's holiness and who knows they cannot stand before this holy God without coming to ruin because of the uncleanliness of his sin, but who then experiences the joy of that guilt being taken away and his sin dealt with. So he's clean and can now stand before a holy God. This, however, is but the vision of one man. This is the shadow of God's plan of forgiveness. He plans to bring as part of his great rescue plan rolled out across the Bible. But we need the reality, not the shadow. And of course, we see that on the cross as Jesus, fully God, fully man, willingly, compelled by love for you and I and for our world, goes to the cross to bear sin's penalty, death, upon his shoulders. Out of his great love for us, so that anyone who willingly bends the knee to King Jesus can have their sin, their guilt removed and their sin atoned for. That is the forgiveness I need. That's the forgiveness you need. Not a bunch of empty rituals that do not change the heart, not an unachievable list of things we need to do to make ourselves good enough, not a worldview that simply tells me there's good guys and bad guys and the problems out there with others. Through Jesus, God offers all people everywhere forgiveness at his expense, not ours, because of his great love for us. Isaiah knew the such a joy of great salvation. As God called out, who are we going to send? He jumped at it. Here I am, send me. As we commission a new church today, we do so as sent ones. As people who know what it means to be cleansed of our sin so that we can be one with a holy God. God is not interested in simply drawing a crowd here on a Sunday. If you trust in Jesus for your salvation, if you rejoice in having your guilt before God removed and your sin atoned for by Jesus' death, you have been made clean and set apart, made holy, as the Bible would call it, so that you can be sent with this awesome message of salvation. Let's jump forward now some 800 years to the other side of the cross of Christ when the salvation to which I prophesied had come to pass, when the shadow had given away to the real thing. The Apostle Paul was at the end of not one, not two, but three missionary journeys, having been commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus to play a very special role in taking this good news of Christ to the Gentiles and establishing new churches. It had been revealed to him by an angel that he would stand before the most powerful person in the world at that time, Caesar. And as God superintends the progress of his messengers across the empire, the known world at that time, down into the north of Africa as well and out to the east, God superintends the progress of his messengers so that this great news of Jesus reaches the heart of the Roman Empire. The Apostle Paul first goes to the Jewish leaders, as was his practice, 
And with great energy, he opens the scriptures and reasons with them. He seeks to persuade them, as we read in Acts 28, from morning till evening, that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah they've been waiting for. The Messiah King, the suffering servant who Isaiah prophesied about, who would bear the sins of many through the afflictions he bore and the death he died. This Messiah King, who Isaiah prophesied, would see again the light of life, resurrection. Paul says to them, verse 20, that it's because of the hope of Israel that he arrives before them as a prisoner of Rome. And if you look back uh, through the book of Acts, this hope of Israel turn of phrase always refers to the fact that Paul declares Jesus' resurrection and ours as part of the good news that flows from Jesus' work on the cross. Paul has tenaciously declared the awesome news of Jesus' finished work there that, to put it in Isaiah's turn of phrase, can remove guilt and cleanse us from sin. And alongside for the, you know, the consistency we see from the Apostle Paul across the many years that Acts covers off, alongside the consistency with which he preached this message, the Jews also match him for consistency in their response. Some are convinced, some disbelieve. And as he's there in Rome with these Jewish leaders, he actually looks back to Isaiah's commissioning, where right after Isaiah had responded to his forgiveness with, here I am, send me, the very next verse, which we didn't read today, God told Isaiah that his ministry and his message would be a difficult one because of the hard-heartedness of people, because of the people's lack of willingness to hear the voice of God. Paul says to the disbelieving Jews in Rome on that day, you know what, guys? Isaiah was right about you. And he quotes what God told Isaiah on the day of his commissioning. Pick it up with me in verse 25 of our Acts reading. They disagreed, that's the Jewish leaders, they disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you'll be ever hearing but never understand. You'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. God's messengers of salvation have always had this dual response. Some people's hard hearts are softened and receive it, this good news of the gospel, finding healing in life. Yet to others, it hardens their already hard hearts further. Isaiah had this ministry. God only kept a remnant of his people faithful to him through it. Jesus often spoke a message that divided the crowds that followed him and some days he would preach and thousands would turn away from him. The Apostle Paul had it consistently and he taught us in a place like 2 Corinthians 2 verse 16 that as we share the message of Jesus, to some will have the fragrance of death, yet to others the aroma of life. 
Yet to, their, yet to the Jews filing out from their audience with Paul, arguing among themselves, the apostle has one final thing to say to them as they go. Imagine one last hush as Paul says the final words recorded for us by Luke, a careful investigator and historian. Verse 28, as Paul gathers their attention once more and says, therefore... I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. The commission given to every church that has by God's grace ever existed across time and across this world has come with a promise that there will always be people who listen. Opposition and disbelief will always be one aspect of being one of God's sent ones. Yet as we look out to our world, we have every right to be holy optimists because God has promised that the nations will listen. Missiologists tell us that right at the moment, Chinese and Iranians are God's favourite with many coming to Christ in great numbers. Go back a few decades, it was Africa. And you can look back through history and see God working in power among many nations. And we should always expect that to have been the case because God has promised that the nations will listen. It's been my prayer for our church, and I suspect I haven't prayed it enough, that we'd kind of get to the point where we would see someone amongst us becoming a Christian every week. And once I thought if God brings us to that point, I'll be praying for two, then three (laughs) every week. Will you join me in that prayer for both Tonsley and Colonel Light Gardens? I think our best streak has been three weeks in a row where someone has given their life to Jesus. It was a few years back now, but each of those stories, and you can ask me after, just really makes my heart sing. And how often it is the way you see God at work in someone's life takes your breath away. Every single story astounds me. There's stories of people who had a persistent Christian friend who'd loved them and kept taking their opportunities to share Jesus right from primary school right the way through to them giving their life to Jesus as an adult. And with the last member of my immediate family giving their life to Jesus last year, I counted back and it was 38 years since my brother Paul first gave his life to Christ, my brother who's no longer with us. It's 38 years since he came to us as a 15-year-old full of joy in his salvation, declaring the good news of Jesus to our household. 38 years it took for all in my house to know Jesus and how he has removed our guilt and atoned for our sins on the cross. As we commission this church today, be holy optimists. May it be your greatest desire to meet people whom God will make holy, whom God will set apart for their rest of their lives to be his messengers to this world. May each member of our now two churches look at the trials and troubles of our world 
and know and be reminded that its biggest problem underlying them all, and there's plenty as we know, but the biggest problem underlying it all is people's estrangement from God. Have Isaiah's big picture of a holy God and know that he is powerful. Know that each day every man, woman and child will come before this holy God and have this experience that Isaiah has had. Our Australian culture's casual aggression will stand for naught on that day and people will be dumbstruck at God's holiness, his majesty and his glory. The only way you can stand before a holy God is to have your guilt removed and your sin atoned for and offered Jesus freely holds out to our world through his death on the cross and his resurrection to life. May each of us know that God's goal in this world is not to gather a crowd on a Sunday, but rather that we have been set apart by a holy God made holy so we can be with him and serve him. May we all lean in to our church family, loving them, caring for them, serving them, refreshing each other with the message of the gospel of God's grace to us in Jesus so that we're healthy, confident in Christ and well taught so that together we can turn as much energy outwards as possible, loving our local communities in many ways, but all with the goal of loving them in the deepest way that there is by sharing the great news of Jesus with many. That is your commissioning, brothers and sisters. When the gospel gets a mixed response, don't be alarmed. It has always been that way for God's messengers, and it always will. Take strength and comfort from your church family as brothers and sisters in Christ. The Apostle Paul had a pretty trying time more than most. And just if you go back and just read the very end of Acts, he took an extraordinary amount of encouragement as he was met as he landed in Italy by brothers and sisters in Christ who had heard he was coming. He was strengthened and took great comfort for them so that he could persevere in the ministry God had given him. It's very important that we're strong for one another as brothers and sisters. Remember that God is not interested in simply drawing a crowd. He has made every believer holy and set them apart for his service. So build each other up. Pray for each other. Serve one another. Love your local church family. Send out missionaries overseas and be on mission in your street your workplace, your sporting club. When it gets tough and you look out to the world with tiredness at its problems and troubles, look to the promises of God that the gospel has been sent to the nations. It has been sent to the Ukraine. It has been sent to Flagstaff Hill. It's been sent to America. It's been sent to Mitchell Park. It's been sent to Russia, and it's been sent to Darlington. It's been sent to Chile, and it's been sent here to Tonsley. 
and God promises they will listen. Let me close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the immense joy of this day as we commission Trinity Church Tonsley. Help us to trust in your promises. Help us, this new church, to be marked by that deep and abiding sense of what it is to have our guilt taken away and our sins atoned for and to know that we've been set apart in this world, made holy for your purposes. May we each respond to this salvation with Isaiah's heartfelt response, Lord, here I am, send me. And help us trust in your promises and to be holy optimists as we hold out the words of life through the gospel of Jesus, knowing that your gospel has been sent to the nations and they will listen. It's in Jesus' precious and very powerful name we pray. Amen.